Thanks so much, choir. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me, if you would, to the book of Philippians chapter 4. The fourth chapter in the book of Philippians is where we're going to be today. And uh, coming close to the end of this series now in Philippians, we've got one more message is the plan uh, after today, and we will round out and finish up the book of Philippians. We've been in for just a few months now, actually. It's been a good ride, and uh, I've learned a lot as I've gone through this. It's been challenging to me. Hope it has been for you as well. So Philippians chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. I would say, I think I can say this accurately, that at the end of 2022, very few people knew the name Damar Hamlin. Uh, there were very few people outside of the city of Buffalo, those who were hardcore NFL fans, that were familiar with that name. However, two days into 2023, virtually everybody, not just in the U.S., but around the world, knew the name Damar Hamlin as well as, uh, uh, I think we had an image of him just on the slide just a second ago, I believe. Yep, there we go. Uh, defensive back for the Buffalo Bills. Uh, really um, had started out the year, if I'm not mistaken, I believe, as a reserve, ended up getting a lot of playing time. and uh, But it was this game on January 2nd that really changed everything, not only for him, but also his story as well. He was, again, playing defensive back January 2nd. They are playing the Cincinnati Bengals. I was actually watching, or I was, the game was on at our house. I was in the kitchen, and uh, Drew was watching the game, and he, he ended up saying, Dad, you need to come in here. And so when I went in, everything was kind of unfolding. What had happened was Damar Hamlin just made a routine hit on a, a receiver who just caught a pass, and he put a hit on him and uh, hit the ground, popped back up again, as is usually the case. And as many of you know, I uh, went right back down again. Went into cardiac arrest on the field. CPR was performed, which is not something you typically see on a football field every day. And uh, all of the protocols went into place. Uh, CPR was performed, and he was resuscitated. Ended up going off to the hospital. I think I heard, read the news that, uh, again, went into cardiac arrest and had a fairly lengthy stay in the hospital. Thankfully now, is not returned to the game, but has recovered and is out and around and doing much better. Uh, But part of the kind of the secondary storylines out of that whole event was a foundation that he had established called Chasing M's. And part of this foundation that is, that is, again, very common amongst professional athletes. Many of them will have charitable organizations that they, uh, that they ultimately sponsor and that they kind of stand behind. And uh, his was called Chasing M's. And he had been raising funds for a toy drive. Now, remember, this accident happened two days into 2023. The whole entire nation, the whole entire world, it seemed, was praying for him. And uh, many of you did. Some of you may have even contributed to that particular foundation. And uh, he was raising money uh, for a fund drive. Uh, When the accident happened on January 2nd, their goal was to raise $2,500, $2,500. They had raised $2,900 when the accident occurred. In 24 hours, that $2,900 in that foundation, because of the uh, outpouring of people that cared for this fella and wanted to just somehow kind of stand alongside of him, that donation uh, amount, that fund amount went in 24 hours from $2,900 to around $4 million in 24 hours. And in 10 days, it would go up over $8 million to somewhere around $8.7 million. It was an incredible show of unity. It was an incredible show of love and solidarity. Uh, it was just sort of a way for people to say, we believe in you. We want to help you. We can't be there for you. We don't even know you, but we're going to give to something that is close to your heart. And it was just this moving tribute to him. Thankfully, he's doing much better. Uh, but the uh, but this outpouring of love and this, this demonstration of unity that came was just something that you don't see every single day. Now, I remember when I was back in college, I remember taking a class. I think it was an advertising class or something. And, and I remember the professor mentioning this word. 
that I had never really heard before. Don't use it, or don't really hear it all the, you know, very often nowadays. It's a word called synergy. And uh, this word synergy comes into play at times in our lives, and we don't really realize it. Look at this definition. I want you to see what this definition is. The 9 o'clock crowd, it was a little too early for them, I think, for this definition. Maybe for you, closer to lunch, this will be a little easier to follow. Uh, the definition of synergy is the interaction of elements that, when combined, produce a total effect greater than the sum of the individual elements. I could have read that 20 times. The 9 o'clock crowd would have been like, it's too early for this, okay? And you're probably thinking, it's still too early, Brooks, for this. So, so what is the definition of synergy? In other words, you could say that synergy, in, in kind of layman's terms, it, it is, um, it, it's what happens when, when the sum of something combined together ultimately exceeds just the individual components broken down. Mike, who sings in our choir, gave me a great illustration that I didn't use the first service because I had not thought about it, and I'll use it today. He said it's like an orchestra. When you take all the pieces of the orchestra, when you look at them individually, they don't seem to add as much. But when you put them together, somehow that synergy, right, that combination produces uh, an outcome that is far greater than what you would have expected if you just examined it piece by piece by piece. 2 plus 2 plus 2 equals, equals 6. Synergy would be 2 plus 2 plus 2 equals 10. All right, you got it? So when you think about it, the story of Damar Hamlin is a beautiful illustration of synergy because there would be one person maybe in Ohio that contributed 15 bucks and another person in Sacramento who contributed $1,000 and someone up in Lansing, Michigan who contributed $10. And you put all these thousands of donations together and all of these people who don't even know him come together and you see this synergistic response, right, where the, the, the ultimate result is greater than the individual parts. When I look at life and when I look at ministry, I believe that the great, one of the greatest examples of synergy is the whole concept of the local church. It's when you take the individuals, you look in this room, and this is a good crowd today for our second service. Do you look in this, in this room and you see the individual people, a lot of seats that are filled, and, and you may sit in your seat and think, you know what? I don't really have a whole lot to offer. I mean, I'm no Simon Peter. I'm no Paul. I'm no Esther, right? I don't have a whole lot to offer to the expansion of the kingdom of God. I mean, what does what can God do through me? You may be thinking that, and the person next to you may be thinking that, and the next person on the row behind you may be thinking that. And the vast majority of people in here may think, what do I really have to add to the expansion of the kingdom of God? What do I really bring to this mix called ministry? And yet when we put ourselves together collectively in the context of a local church, it's amazing what God can ultimately accomplish. It really, truly is 2 plus 2 plus 2 equaling 10 or even more beyond, right? It's when we put ourselves together as part of a body bringing what we have been given by the Lord into the mix, adding it all together, God ultimately multiplies the outcome, and there's a, there's a principle here. I'm going to give you a few principles this morning as we move through this passage in Philippians 4, but there's a principle that I want us to start with, and the principle is this, that when we look at ourselves as believers, believers are expected to walk this Christian journey ultimately together, not independently of one another. God's design for you as a Christian and for me as a Christian is that as we walk this journey, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means we come to the place where we've decided God has moved in our lives and we've decided, you know what? I don't want sin to characterize my life anymore. I'm tired of sin in my life. I don't want it. I don't want it to, to, to characterize who I am. I'm ready to admit it to, to Jesus, lay it down, and invite him to forgive and take over. And so we do that. We, we admit our sin. We say, Jesus, we believe he's God. He died. He rose. Would you forgive me, wipe the slate clean, and take over my life? 
be my Savior, be my Lord. That's what makes us a Christian. That's what I'm talking about when I use that term. And for us as, as Christians, as believers, as followers of Christ, from that point forward, only Jesus can save us. And it's, and it's the Lord who is growing us and molding us and shaping us, right? But his design is that we move forward in that journey as Christians together, not independently as one another. We're stronger and we're better together. We get more accomplished for the kingdom of God together. And also, <clears throat> he does his great work oftentimes through the influence and the impact of other people around us. And so this simple truth is, is all through the pages of the New Testament that as believers, we are ultimately called to walk out this journey with Christ in the context of unity with other Christians. That's why COVID was so dangerous to the body of Christ when it came three years ago. That's why it was so dangerous. And still even now, there, there are the ripples and there are the aftershocks and the after effects of it because it decimated the walks of some Christians who were already weak and already kind of tottering and already gathering with other Christians wasn't a priority. COVID just did the knockout blow, right? It just put them down for the count. Many who were on the fringe and those who study church, right, and, and, and write the blog posts and, and, and do all these things, they were saying it. They were saying 20% of the people in the local church aren't coming back after COVID, it's like, there's no way this is going to happen. And yet, largely, it was probably true. There are many who haven't returned or replaced church with online church, which has a great place, right? If I, was, if I wasn't a pastor and I was just moving with my family to another city and I was looking for a local church, I would go online and I would watch churches online and I would kind of get a feel for what churches are in this community. It's kind of a, a nice little door in, in a sense, before you commit to go, but never was it designed to be church. It can't be church. I mean, we could buy a million dollars worth of equipment and, and, and I lose 30 pounds and start wearing you know, clothes that try to make me look 30 years younger, I guess, like a lot of other do on online TV. And, uh, and it's not going to work. It's not church. It's just not, it's not going to accomplish that. Why is that? Because when, when, when church is just a matter of sitting behind a screen, now I'm not talking about those who don't have an option, right? They're homebound or, or there are reasons that they, they can't engage with the body of Christ. I'm talking about when it's just a convenience. If church is just that to us or we're sitting behind a screen, you can't serve sitting behind a screen. Right? You can't engage with others. I've had conversations with people through the years in hallways and in Bible study groups that have so encouraged me. Right? That doesn't happen when you're sitting behind a screen. You can't, you can't serve. You can't make disciples sitting behind a screen. And Jesus made a big deal out of making disciples. We've had some roof work done in here um, uh, or on this building over the past few weeks. A lot going on this past week, week and a half. And, um, and so part of that, because there's like a bazillion people up there doing work on the other side of this roof, uh, it resulted in some debris and dust and those kind of things in here. And so, you know, we had it all uh, cleaned up and buttoned down, and, and they told us, yep, there'll be some guys up there doing shingles on Saturday, but you're not going to really have any debris necessarily on the other side, meaning in this room. So we came in this morning, and there was some debris in here, and then you would have been, you, you'd have had it like imprint of dust on your clothes when you got up. And so we had a group of people, probably a dozen, 15 maybe or so in here before the first service, like with vacuums and shop vacs and doing all kinds of stuff, cleaning this thing up. Listen, you can't do that from live stream, right? You have to be here on the property. And it's just one little example of, uh, of, of the danger that comes when we miss the concept of what church truly is. It is about being together. That's what it is. That's not my definition. 
That's the picture that we see in Scripture. And when we're gathered together, there's this 2 plus 2 plus 2 equals 10 effect that comes into place as a result. It'd be interesting. I was thinking this this morning. Um, imagine that if live stream occurred 2,000 years ago. Uh, can you imagine the conversation? Hey, man, were you there today in, in, that, in that service when, when people were up on the roof and they cut that hole in there and they, they lowered this man down? There were like four friends that lowered the guy down. Were you, were you there for that? When, when the, Jesus like healed him on the spot? It's like, no, but I saw it on live stream. Right? But the audio was a little sketchy, so I couldn't quite hear what Jesus said. Yeah, just imagine those, those events. I mean, you, you would have had to have been there. And that's kind of the way it is with the body of Christ. So you're thinking, so Brooks, why are, we, why are we doing this kind of conversation about what church looks like and some of the dangers that go along with it? Because we see the beauty of, of how it operates when it's done well in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10 today. And what we see here in this passage of Scripture, it's kind of a lengthy one today. I'm going to go 10, verse 10 through verse 20. And then next week, we're going to close out with the remainder uh, as, as Paul finishes out this letter. We're going to finish it out next week is the plan as well. But in this passage today, what we're going to see is that Paul is going to demonstrate his, his value that he places on his relationship with the Philippian Christians. He's going to demonstrate how much he values those believers, that they are partners with him in ministry. He's going to talk about partnership and what partnership looks like in ministry. And at the end of it, he's going to give clear credit, not to himself, but to God. And how God gets glory when we work together to ultimately further the message of the gospel. So here's a little bit of setup. So Paul is writing this letter, uh, and many of you have heard this. If you've been here for this whole series, you've heard this over and over and over, right? The context of this book of Scripture. Paul is in prison. When he writes it, this is part of what they call the prison epistles. Paul is writing this letter. Uh, he's writing it more than likely from a Roman prison. It's more than likely where he is. And he's, uh, he's there for his faithfulness to the gospel. That's why he's there. And uh, he writes this letter to the Philippian church. Now, he had planted this church about 10 years or so before. He planted the church. Obviously, God led him on to other areas, and he travels around, and he continues to plant churches and to preach the message of the gospel. And, and through those years, the Philippian church would partner with him, uh, sort of off and on maybe. There were some periods where they could not do so much. And yet Paul highlights how much they mean to him, and he begins to highlight the difference that their giving would ultimately make. And you see this beautiful synergy, synergy that takes place where the little that they offer ultimately accomplishes a lot as they live out in unity what it means to be part of the body of Christ. So let's jump in here. Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 10. Now let me just say, I'm going to skip around a little bit in this passage just to try to help to, to lay out a little bit of a flow that helped me to understand. Hopefully it'll help you as well. But we're going to start in verse 10. We're going to skip around a little bit, but we're going to finally land in verse 20. So Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Paul writes and he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So Paul expresses here, he says, I, I am rejoicing, I'm rejoicing greatly, I'm rejoicing in the Lord. And here's the reason, because you have been concerned for me through these years. Remember, 10 years before this church was planted. 
he says that you've revived your concern for me, not that you quit caring, right, but you didn't have always have the opportunity to tangibly demonstrate how much I meant to you. Now, Paul is talking about a gift here, more than likely financial in nature, that this church had given to Paul in the past. If you move down to verse 15 and verse 16 in chapter 4, you kind of get a sense of that. He says, you yourselves also know, he says to the Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So Paul had been supported by this church previously. It sounds like it was financial in nature. Uh, Paul was a tent maker. He would travel to different cities, and he would set up shop, and he would fund his own needs while he presented and while he preached and proclaimed the message of the gospel. But he had a church in Philippi that knew who he was, they knew what he was about, and they wanted to play their part in helping to keep the gospel moving forward by giving to him. And this church in Philippi, even though through hardship, they would be faithful to give. Apparently, there had been some type of a hiatus in that, right? They were not giving, and now they had revived their concerns specifically. Look at what it says in verse 14. He says, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. There's this picture of hardship, right? And this hardship that is shared, Remember, the goal of the Christian, not the goal, but the, the, the intent of the Christian life is not that we walk it out independently of one another, but that we live out the Christian life in unity with one another, together, because we need each other. Paul says, you've shared with me in my affliction. They may have said, well, all I did was just send a few coins. All I did was just make a small contribution. What good did my giving make? Paul would seem to say, well, there's this synergistic quality, right, where it all comes together, and it met my needs, and it was a blessing to me. We were able to partner together in the work of the gospel, even to the point to where you shared in my suffering. Verse 18, Paul says in this letter, he says, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. This is, um, this is kind of like Paul writing a receipt. (laughs) You know, he's, he's saying, I got, I got everything you sent. You know, remember they sent this to Paul Paul receives the gift. They could have been wondering, well, did he ever get it? I mean, whatever happened with this? He sends this letter back. We'll talk about that in just a second. And he makes mention at the very end of the letter, just a few verses before the close, he says, I've received everything in full. I have an abundance. It's kind of like a little receipt there. And then he ties in some Old Testament language. He says, I've, having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That, that's Old Testament sacrifice language that Paul employs now in a New Testament context, right? And this is a big deal. The Old Testament sacrifices were a big deal. Paul says, what you sent to me, they could have easily said, well, I mean, it wasn't that much. Together, all mixed up together, he says, this is a fragrant aroma, acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing, not just to me, Paul says, well-pleasing to God. And he mentions this fella, Epaphroditus. Now, I don't want to get bogged down, but I think Epaphroditus is important. In fact, we, we kind of devoted half of a message to him back earlier in chapter 2. And I want us to go back here in chapter 2 here for just a moment. Who was Epaphroditus? 
Well, Epaphroditus was part of the church family in Philippi, okay? We're going to read this passage in a second, but just follow me on this. He was a part of the church family in Philippi. When they sent the gift to Paul that he just said, hey, I've received it all, I'm abundantly supplied, they sent it by Epaphroditus. He's the one that they said, hey, you you beat it on to Rome, find Paul there, he's in jail, shouldn't be hard to find, and uh, be sure to get this gift to him. And so Epaphroditus delivered that gift. He got very sick while he was there in Rome. You know, they say the food in Rome can make you, I don't know, I have no idea what caused the sickness. Maybe it was the water. And he got really sick there. And then when he got better, Paul sent him back to Philippi again with this letter. So he was kind of like the carrier pigeon, right? He leaves Philippi with the gift, gives it to Paul, hangs out there, gets sick, gets better, and then he goes back to Philippi with the letter. Well, let's go back to chapter 2, and let's just see what Paul thinks about this fella, Epaphroditus, that we know virtually nothing about except what we read of here in this letter. Chapter 2, verse 25, Paul described him earlier in the letter. He said, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Remember, he sent him back with this letter. Look at how he describes him. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. In other words, Paul says we have been through the battles together. He's also your messenger and minister to my need. And I sent him back because he was longing for you all, and he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I wouldn't have to sorrow, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and that I may be less concerned about you. So receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. He said, this man is a champion for the faith. Verse 30, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Right? Epaphroditus was the link. They had a desire to give. Paul had a need. He was the link. And Paul speaks of him in glowing terms in chapter 2. So where are we going with all this? I want you to see the partnership that's built into this. You've got a man in prison for the gospel. You've got a church in Philippi that he had helped to plant. You've got one individual named Epaphroditus, and they all add together to ultimately do a great work that God had orchestrated to not only bless a man, but to ultimately get us a book of the Bible that we're still reading 2,000 years later. (laughs) It's 2 plus 2 plus 2 equals 10 and beyond. This is what God is doing. And it paints this picture that believers are expected to live out the Christian journey in unity with one another together, not simply as individuals doing our own thing. Right? This is just one picture of many in the pages of Scripture. Look at what it says in verse 11 and verse 12. We're going to kind of introduce another principle here in just a second. Verse 11 and verse 12. Paul says, it's kind of like a little note. He says, not that I speak from want. He's just said in verse 10, I rejoice that you've revived your concern for me. Verse 11, not that I speak from want. Right? I just want to be clear. Because I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Paul says, I have learned 
contentment. Principle number two, Christ's supply is sufficient for every need that we have. Right, that's the picture that Paul's painting here. Christ's supply is sufficient for every single need that we may carry. Paul speaks about contentment. It's an interesting little twist that he kind of adds in there. He says, I've learned some lessons along the way. I've had a lot and I've had a little. And I've learned how to be comfortable and content in either. Whether times when there was food overflowing, running out of the cupboard, right out of the pantry, or whether I open it up and there's not one can of beans in there, right? I've learned. Whether I'm doing my own thing, running my business, preaching the gospel, or whether I'm locked up in a Roman cell, I've learned along the way to be content. Now, I'm no sociologist, but I think it would be maybe accurate to say that we are a generation, right, in a sense, who probably have more than any other generation before us, and yet it may be accurate to say that we are also the least content generation <laughs> of any that's ever lived. I mean, Paul's learned a big lesson here, this lesson of contentment. And the reason he can learn this lesson of contentment is because he knows that his dependence doesn't lie in what he has or doesn't have. And it even doesn't lie in what others may give to him from the outside, such as the Philippians. But what Paul has learned, he expresses in verse 13. Look at what he says here. He says in verse 13, I can do all things through him or through Christ who strengthens me. He's saying to the Philippians, I'm over the top grateful for what you've given to me. I don't take it for granted. I'm sending this message back, and I want you to be sure that you hear it from me. I am grateful. Thank you, thank you, thank you for what you've given. But understand <laughs> that I'm not a slave to your generosity, right? I'm not dependent on you giving. You're an instrument that God used to meet my need. That's what he's saying. Understand that I have what I, what I truly need. I don't speak from want. I've learned to be content and that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, a lot of times what happens is we'll see that verse taken out of context and you'll hear a football player say, you know, I want to throw eight touchdown passes in this next game because after all, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, we kind of throw it out there in different contexts. And surely God does strengthen even the athlete, right, to do whatever it is that they do. But the context of this verse isn't that we just attach it to the next great thing we want to try to do on our own. The context of this verse is that no matter what we face in our life, no matter what the issues we are, he's always the answer to the issue. He's always the provision for the need. He's always the God who's with us through thick and thin, no matter where we go, no matter what we've done. No matter what we face, he is faithful, he is good, he loves us, he's not going anywhere, and he is the one who not only indwells us through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the presence of the Holy Spirit, but he provides through his power and love and provision for every single need that we have. Not every want. <laughs> Some things we want will only bring greater need in different ways. But he provides for our needs. Paul says, I'm content. I got everything I need. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your gift. God has used you. He's provided. But I understand that it's his supply that provides ultimately for my need. Now look at what he says in verse 17. Again, we're skipping around a little bit, trying to, trying to help hopefully follow a little bit of a flow here. Verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift itself. He says, again, let me be clear. 
I, I, it's not that I come at this thing from a, from a lot of wants. God supplies my need. He's used you to do it. Thank you, he says. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself. I, I've never asked you for anything. I've never sought a gift from you, he says. But I do seek for the profit which increases to your account. Now, that's an interesting verse. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Not only did Paul benefit but the people who gave in Philippi, when they passed the hat and they said, hey, we're collecting for Paul. Remember him? He planted this church 10 years ago. He's locked up in prison for his faithfulness. We're going to collect an offering and we're going to send it to him. Epaphroditus is going and he's going to drop it off to him. And it's going to be a great thing for Paul. And we're going to collect this. So when the hat comes by, just put in what you're comfortable with. Paul says when he gets the gift... He says, not only have I benefited from this, but those who put something in the hat when it came by, he says, you've benefited also. And he uses interesting language. He says that I seek for the profit. He says, I want you to be blessed by what you give. I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. Now, let me just, let me just pause here for just a moment, and let me give a word of warning. Because this verse can be so taken out of context. And if you're ever scrolling through the TV channels late at night and it's after midnight and you're even on one of those Christian TV channels, if you're not careful, you're going to come across somebody on there with a nice slick suit and, and, and really good uh, language and speech. And he can use this particular passage of Scripture or others like it to say, if you just plant this seed, brother... Right, meaning send this to my ministry. If you just plant this seed, then God's going to multiply. And there are going to be other verses they'll use. He's going to multiply that seed. You just run out there and check that mailbox. You're going to have a check in it one day, or somebody's going to dump a bunch of cash in your bank account. That's not what this verse is saying. In fact, Paul doesn't even speak of what type of profit. He says, I seek for the profit. I seek, can we say maybe the benefit? That increases to your account. In other words, when you give even to someone like me, Paul says, God sees what you've done in secret, and he is going to be faithful to you. And the prophet may be financial. I mean, maybe God will bless financially. He certainly has done that many times for many people in this room. Out of the blue kind of stuff. Check in the mailbox kind of stuff. I mean, he certainly does that. But, but maybe the prophet here Paul's thinking of is that maybe he'll give you strength to, th to stand strong in a godless culture that got me locked up and might get you locked up one day too. Maybe he'll put that in your account, the strength to persevere. Maybe it's an emotional prophet. Maybe it's a spiritual prophet. Maybe it's some other prophet. He doesn't tell us exactly what it is. But I can tell you what Paul is not saying is that God is a big cha-ching in the sky. Just pull the handle, make the donation, and he's going to multiply it into your account that way. That's not what he's saying. It's that same theme of this principle that God is faithful to provide for our needs that God is one who ultimately sees our need and he gives us what we ultimately need. That's the kind of God he is. He supplies sufficiently for any need that we carry. Verse 20, he says, Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's all to his glory. But there's one verse we haven't touched on yet. Verse 19. And there's a principle that comes out of verse 19 that's similar to the fact that he sufficiently provides for our needs. Principle number three is that he provides faithfully to the faithful. Verse 19, and my God 
will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ. Now remember the context of this passage. It's a group of Christians in Philippi who out of their poverty chose to give to further the gospel and meet the needs of Paul, a brother in Christ. Partnering together, putting their resources together, different parts, one team. Church in Philippi, a man of Epaphroditus, a soldier for the gospel locked up in Rome. And as they do this, perhaps even sacrificially giving to Paul, Paul reminds them of this beautiful promise that my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He provides faithfully to the faithful. I read this verse in Psalm 37 a few weeks ago. Psalm 37 verse 25. The psalmist says, I have been young and now I am old, and yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. Listen, you may have come into a season in your life of great hardship. Maybe it's because of the economy in which we find ourselves today. Maybe you lost a job. Maybe you're in sales and you're, 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 uh, um, your income constantly fluctuates up and down, up and down, up and down. But maybe some things have changed with your territory or your position or what have you. And maybe it's just really tanked and you find yourself at a place today where you're thinking, I don't know how we're going to make it. Listen, the truth that we see in this passage is that God, number one, knows your need. And number two, he's faithful to the faithful. And he says, I will supply all of your needs according to his riches, to his glory in Christ Jesus. So as we put all this together and as we begin to kind of land the plane here, let's just, let's just look back at these principles real quickly. The first principle is that we see in this passage is that the design of the Christian journey is for us to walk it together, not to walk it independently of one another. Ask yourself, so where am I on that journey as it relates to this simple truth? Am I walking this journey by myself? Am I kind of scattered? Have I, have I begun to attend here at this church, but I'm not really engaged? You know, I'm, I'm coming and I'm, and I'm watching and I'm listening, but I'm not really getting to know anyone else. There's really no life on life. Where are you in that journey specifically? Are you, are you engaged with other believers? Are you walking that journey together? Or are you becoming more and more and more isolated, just sort of doing the Christian thing on your own? In fact, maybe even ask yourself, how can I move from attending, from, from, from simply attending to engaging? And how can I move from engaging to actually going on mission with the message of the gospel in my day-to-day -day life? That's the progression, right, of the Christian life. The second principle that we looked at talked about how Christ is the ultimate supply for our need. Would you say that when you look at the needs that come in your life, does it begin to create more anxiety, more worry, more stress? Or when you look at your needs in your life, would you say that, that there is a, just kind of a, a peace that washes over you because you're content with what you have and because you know that God's going to take care of the rest? Are you able to walk in joy in that peace and that hope or is the anxiety of this world and the, 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 the worries of this world, are they stealing that joy and stealing that peace and stealing that contentment? And would you say finally that when we look at how God provides faithfully to the faithful, would you say that, that he's getting glory through the life you live, that he's the one that's lifted up? When people see your life, they would say that's a life lived to the glory of God. Or would they say that that's a life lived for the pursuits of self? It's all to his glory. Verse 20, 
to the glory of God and God alone. Listen, if you're a believer, a follower of Christ, God has so many things in store, not only for you, but he wants to do through you. But what he wants first from us is our faithfulness and our surrender. And if you don't know him, man, the way and the place that that relationship begins is not by us doing things better. It comes from us saying, Lord, I can't even do it anymore at all. I surrender. I I admit my sin, Jesus. Would you forgive and would you take over? And he'll do it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for very real passages of Scripture like what we read here in Philippians. Sometimes we just see the Bible as one big book and we forget that it's a, a compilation, in some cases, of actual letters written from one person to another group or another church, such as the case with Philippians. And Lord, it's so, so neat to see the personal tone that Paul uses where he's thanking this church, where he made a huge investment I and mean, he planted that church. Lord, you used him to plant that church. They'd been through so much together, and he had no doubt relationships in that church. And then then at his point of need, you use them to help provide for him in his need. And it paints this beautiful picture of what it looks like when Christians work together, when we walk in unity with one another. They could have so easily forgotten Paul. It had been 10 years since he planted that church, and yet they're still reaching out to connect with him. Because they got it. They understood what the Christian life is all about and how it works. God, we need so much of that today as believers. We can't afford to try to walk this journey alone. There are too many traps along the way. There are too many dangers along the way. Too many opportunities for us to get discouraged or for us to get uh, off track and, and out of your will. Lord, we need one another. Thank you that you've given us this beautiful thing called the church. That is not perfect. Lord, it's filled with people that that we all have areas of our lives that need work. We all have struggles with sin. None of us have arrived. And yet, what a beautiful thing you've given us, God, to help us to be the people you've called us to be. You alone are our Savior, not the church. But Lord, thank you for giving us a body of Christ to live out our Christian life in the midst of. And Lord, may that in itself send us outside the walls to take the gospel to those who need to hear. Lord, along the way, needs arise. Along the way, worries sometimes mount. But we thank you for these reminders in here. God, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us and that you, God, are faithful to provide for our needs through Christ Jesus, all to your glory. Help us to remember those truths. Help us to walk in unity. Lord, for those who don't know you, may they come to place their faith in Jesus soon to know you as we do. And we thank you, God, yet again for being this kind of a God to us, not one who leaves us to ourselves, but who walks along with us and even indwells us through your spirit. We praise you and you alone in Jesus' name.